1: Support for this show comes from the Utopia Foundation, committed to providing opportunities for people to express their good intentions in local and international communities. Learn how you can create positive change in the world at utopiafound.org.
2: From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Did you know that fearful thoughts predispose you to illness? Can you tell the difference between true fear and false fear? Would you like to learn how to tune into courage and reshape your relationship to life's uncertainties? This is what we're gonna be exploring today with my guest, Dr. Lissa Rankin, a mind-body physician, author, speaker, and founder of the Whole Health Medicine Institute. Lisa Rankin, welcome to Essential Conversations.
1: Oh, Thank you, I'm delighted to be here.
2: In your new book, The Fear Cure, you say that fear itself can become a serious risk factor. Well, everything from heart disease to diabetes to cancer. How does that work?
1: Yeah, you know, as a, as a physician, this certainly was never anything that was taught to me in medical school. And I think, you know, in our culture, we're so disconnected from fear. We don't even, we don't even realize that we are at its mercy in some ways because we, we kind of label it as stress. And we normalize that. Like, we just assume that's part of our culture. So, you know, and we know that stress is related to illness and such. But when it comes time to actually recognizing that a fearful thought can directly translate into heart disease or cancer, or even the common cold. A lot of people don't recognize that, and there's an actual mechanism for it, because what they do teach us in medical school is that the body has its own natural self-healing mechanisms, that every day we make cancer cells and we get rid of them, that every day we're exposed to bacteria and viruses and fungi, and you know the immune system knows how to take care of this, that every day proteins break, and our, you know, our DNA knows how to go in and repair things. But what I didn't realize, and this was never really part of my medical education, is that those natural self-healing mechanisms only operate when the nervous system is in the relaxation response. So there's two states of the nervous system. There's the sympathetic nervous system, or the fight or flight nervous system, or the stress response, what Walter Cannon at Harvard called the stress response. And that's the emergency system, right? You know, if you're being chased by a tiger and you have true fear, then that system gets activated and that is meant to physically protect the organism, right? That's to keep you from dying. So this is good, a good fear and this is a healthy response if your body is actually in danger. But what a lot of people don't recognize is that in our culture, we have about, on average, about 50 stress responses per day and we're not getting chased by tigers 50 times. So it's, A simple thought, a thought like, I'm going to run out of money, or my husband's cheating on me, I'm going to lose my job. The thought itself can actually trigger the stress response. And every time a stress response is triggered, the body's natural self-healing mechanisms are flipped off. So fortunately, the body has this alternative uh, state of the nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system, or what Herbert Benson at Harvard called the relaxation response. And whenever the body is in relaxation response, this is kind of its homeostatic response. This is when the body is doing its maintenance, its preventive care, its anti-aging, its cancer fighting, its immune system boosting. Because it assumes like, okay, the organism is safe right now, it's being fed, it's being sheltered, there's no tigers on the loose. We can, you know, repair. And, you know, that's the state that we want to try to put ourselves in all the time. And this is the state actually where courage is born as well.
2: So both of these states are natural, the stress state and the relaxation state. Yes. You're going to suggest, I think, that we have some control vis-a-vis initiating The relaxation response. What about the fear state? I mean, when these things pop into our heads, the stress is automatic, or do we have some? Is there a moment where we can say, no, no, I'm not going there?
1: The stress is automatic if the organism feels threatened. So if there really is a tiger on the loose, that stress response is going to get triggered. And we've all felt it. You know, you're driving in traffic and somebody cuts you off and you slam on your brakes and you're almost in a car accident. And you feel it. You can feel that adrenaline rushing through your body, right? Your body is filled with cortisol and adrenaline. And, you know, again, that is a a healthy thing. If you're about to be in a car accident, you need that jolt of adrenaline. You need that stress hormone of cortisol to bump up to help protect you.
2: So if I feel that or I think that my spouse is cheating on me, I'm going to have the same physiological response, even though I don't know it's true. Is that what we're saying?
1: Yes, and this is the part that we do have control over. So the thought, my spouse is cheating on me, is what I would call a false fear. So that is, it's just a thought. In other words, a false fear is something that exists only in the imagination. The, the organism is not at risk. You're not at risk of dying when you have the thought, my spouse is cheating on me.
2: So is that the criteria, that, that my life is in danger, or I mean, maybe my spouse is cheating on me?
1: Well, so that's a good point. So... True fear, there's, what we're talking about here is the distinction and the discernment and the ability to discern between true fear and false fear. Because the thing is, you know, we also sort of demonize, demonize fear and we make it something that, you know, maybe we, um, we should be ashamed of or it's a weakness or we need to avoid it. But fear is absolutely our friend, whether it's true fear or false fear. It's just about transforming our relationship with fear and really coming into right relationship with uncertainty. So true fear, you know, the obvious form of true fear is when, you know, the organism is at risk. You're standing on the edge of a cliff and you're feeling afraid that you might fall off. That's obvious true fear. But there's another type of, of thought that I would categorize as true fear that you might call intuition. So, for example, you might have an intuition that says my spouse is cheating on me, right? And that is actually there to protect you. But you might also have a paranoid false fear that says, my, my spouse is cheating on me. So both of them are going to likely activate the stress response. But there's a way to actually deal with that thought when it arises that sort of puts you into spiritual inquiry, where let's say you have the thought, my spouse is cheating on me. Well, how do you tell the difference between whether, you know, whether that's your intuition giving you useful information that's intended to guide you in your life? Or is that a paranoid thought that's unnecessarily triggering stress responses and pointing to an area of growth where maybe there's a limiting belief there or maybe there's a childhood pattern there or maybe your dad cheated on your mom and that, that wound is getting, is getting needled. And so there's a lot of tools in my book, The Fear Cure. I won't, I know we don't have a lot of time so I won't go into all of the tools. But there are specific tools that you can use to discern between those so that you're actually protected by your fear. Including your intuition, where you know such that you can you can use other tools to dissipate the false fears. So, for example, with true fear, I I talk a lot in the book about Gavin De Becker's book, *A Gift*, *The Gift of Fear*, because Gavin De Becker was a threat assessment specialist to work for the White House. So he would get called in to come and assess threats. You know, they get death threats for the president or whatever, and the question was: Is this a real threat? Is it a true fear, or is it a false fear? Essentially. And he interviewed victims of violent crimes and found that almost every victim of a violent crime had an intuition that warned them about the criminal, and they ignored it because it wasn't rational. Like there was a voice or a feeling in their body or a thought that they had that said, don't trust the babysitter. But they ignored it because the babysitter came highly recommended. She looked perfectly nice. She seemed sweet with the kids. So this happens to us all the time, where intuition is speaking to us and we ignore it. And that actually puts us at risk.
2: So that um, sounds to me that it makes it even more difficult to know true fear from false fear.
1: Well, it's not. It, it's actually not difficult. It, it, being able to discern between the two can be quite simple when you have the tools. So, for example, one of the tools is really tuning into your body. Your body is a highly sensitive compass to these sorts of things. But most of us are so disembodied, we're so detached from our physical experience we're like, you know, walking cerebrums, and I know this from personal experience because as a doctor, that's what I was taught to be. I was just a brain who happened to have a body that could get the brain from A to B. But the the body is a highly sensitive tool, and you can learn to trust the compass of your body by recognizing the signs and symptoms that it gives you, and this this fits in with medicine as well. Because a lot of the physical symptoms that my patients were coming to me with, just subtle things like, you know, chronic pain, um, headaches, backaches, um, nausea, you know, that feeling in the pit of your stomach. We talk about gut intuition, you know, the difficulty sleeping. You know, the body is also speaking in physical symptoms. And I'm, you know, in my last book, Mind Over Medicine, which is all about the scientific proof that the body can heal itself, I talk a lot about how you know, the body is always giving us subtle, subtle messages. And that includes subtle messages about true fear and false fear. And if we aren't paying attention to those subtle messages, then the body starts to yell, and we start getting more significant, potentially even life-threatening illnesses. I'm not suggesting that there aren't biochemical mechanisms as well, but they participate. Our thoughts, beliefs, and feelings by turning, you know, on the stress response and turning off the body's self-healing mechanisms can predispose us to certain biochemical mechanisms.
0: Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
2: If I think something is true, then my body is going to respond based on my belief that you know, I'm in danger. If my belief is false, if I'm really not in danger, then how am I going to distinguish between what's true and what isn't?
1: That's not actually completely accurate. Your body, for example, your mind can have a thought and your body can actually be completely relaxed in the state of that thought. And this is how intuition tends to come in. So, for example, if you talk to super intuitive people, they may get a thought that says, don't trust the babysitter. And part of the way that they differentiate it from paranoia is that it feels like it just drops right in. It's completely neutral. And the body doesn't have a, a panicked response to it. The body actually has a very relaxed, open feeling at the same time that it has a thought that might feel scary. So all of that is in the fear cure, though. But I want to answer, you asked for one other tool. And one question, I mentioned this before, is the concept of of going into inquiry around your thought. So, for example, you have the thought, my spouse is cheating on me. Well, a simple thing to start with is what's true and what's not true about that thought? What's true about that thought? Or or if you're having the thought, I'm not going to have enough money in retirement. Well, what's true about that thought? What's not true about that thought? Because most of the time, when we have a thought like that, we don't even question it. We just assume it's true. My spouse is cheating on me. And then you have this sort of um, ongoing stress response. So the initial stress response, you can't necessarily avoid in that moment. Stress response lasts about 90 seconds. What happens is that we get into these ruminations, these repetitive thought cycles that perpetuate the stress response. Even though the organism is no longer in danger, we do the same thing with these fear thoughts. We ruminate on them and we continue the stress responses. And we can abort that by going into inquiry and asking what's true and what's not true about a fear thought. And, you know, the mind is funny. It can't hold a paradox. This is why, you know, if you're familiar with the Zen koans, the mind can't hold something being true and not true at the same time sort of like those images that you see where you have to flip your vision and you can either see two faces looking at each other or a vase. It's like that. So even just throwing in the question what's not true about that thought starts to loosen the mind's stronghold on the thought my spouse is cheating on me. If you can even introduce a little bit of evidence that my spouse might not be cheating on me, then you actually calm, you start to calm the nervous system And the mind can't make good decisions when it's in stress response. It can only make clear, helpful, protective decisions when it's in relaxation response. And there are lots of other tools in the book as well about how to bring the nervous system into relaxation response. Because once you're relaxed about the whole thing, then you could actually have a very calm, neutral, not charged conversation with your spouse about a feeling that you're having that you're not sure maybe whether it's an intuition or whether it's just paranoia. And so from that calm, grounded, relaxed nervous system place of clarity where you're in inquiry and you're curious about whether your spouse is cheating on you, there's a way to show up in relationship with your spouse such that you can potentially gather more information and and really find out what's true and what's not true. It may be as simple as saying it seems like your attention has Skipped away from me. And I'm wondering if you're putting your attention elsewhere. It's much more likely to actually get you to the point where you get the information that you need in order to make healthy decisions that make you happy and safe and protect your heart. from <laughs> heart disease.
2: I know that in the book, you identify what you call the four fearful assumptions and how you can transform them, I guess, into four courage cultivating truths. Can you give us some insight into those four fearful sure. assumptions and the four courage cultivating truths?
1: You know, I actually got really blocked when I was writing this book because I'm a doctor. I'm not a spiritual teacher. I'm not a therapist. I'm I'm a physician. So I collected all of this really compelling data linking fear and disease, and then I thought, oh, no, now I've just scared people more. What can we offer as far as a way to literally transform your experience of the world? The cultural worldview that we live in, in Western culture, it's very specific to our culture. I didn't realize this until I was studying with the shamans at 16,000 feet in the Andes in Peru. And I realized they have a completely different worldview. And they're much less afraid than we are. Because they actually have the four fearful uh, assumptions turned around already into the four courage-cultivating truths. And I'll tell you what those are. So I realized that there are four beliefs that we have that we can go into inquiry about. We can ask whether or not these are true, and they are that uncertainty is unsafe, so we need to avoid it at all costs, that loss, we can't handle losing what we cherish, so we have to grasp it as tight as we possibly can, that it's a hostile universe, so we have to always be on guard, and the mind is always uh, configuring to try to get what it wants and avoid what it doesn't want, and that we're all alone, and no wonder we're scared. If we believe that we're all alone in a hostile universe where uncertainty is unsafe and we're at risk of losing what we cherish, of course we're going to be in stress response all the time. But if you take each of those beliefs and flip them around, this is actually what the Keros, the, the tribe that I was living with in Peru, this is actually what they believe about the world. They believe that uncertainty is the gateway to possibility. If we know what the future holds, it's very limited, or if we pretend to know what the future holds, because, of course, certainty is just an illusion anyway. But there comes a point, and and I talk a lot about this in the book, about how to actually facilitate this process, where not only does uncertainty become not scary, but it actually becomes kind of seductive. Because if you don't know what the future holds, anything could happen. Miracles could happen. You could have a spontaneous remission from your cancer if you're willing to lean into uncertainty, knowing that your intuition is going to keep you safe so you don't need to have those false fears you know, triggering you all the time. And the second one, that we can't handle losing what we cherish. Well, when I was up in the Kairos, a woman went into labor and delivered her baby, and I'm, I'm trained as an ob and so I asked if they needed my help, and they said, no, no, no. The women here, they just go to their huts. We don't even have midwives. They know how to deliver their babies. So the next day I asked, how the baby was doing, and they said the baby died, and I was devastated, and the tribe was gathering around the woman to support her in her grief, but it, they moved through it very quickly, and their, their worldview was, well, Pachamama, Mother Earth, Pachamama gives and Pachamama takes, Pachamama gave us this baby and then Pachamama took her home, and so they actually believe that loss is natural and can lead to growth. And every one of you that's listening right now can probably think of an example in your life. I know, I lost my beloved father 9 years ago, and I wouldn't be doing the work that I'm doing now if it weren't for the loss of my dad. And so I can actually see how as much as I grieve losing my dad and as much as painful as it has been to not have him in my life, I can see how, you know, that led to my growth, that my soul was growing, that it was maybe even part of my soul curriculum that Perhaps if you have this sort of cosmology, maybe my dad and I even at a soul level made an agreement that he would leave me too young, and that would be part of my initiation, my spiritual initiation into the world. So the third one is, instead of it's a hostile universe, what if it's a friendly universe? What if it's a purposeful universe? What if everything that happens, even the things that we think that don't look like what we thought we wanted, what if they're all happening for a reason as part of that soul curriculum? And then the last one is we're all alone. Well, in many spiritual traditions for millennia, we've been teaching that we're all one, that there is this interbeing, this interconnectedness within all things, and that that which happens to any one of us is happening to all of us as part of this collective consciousness that unites us. And when you believe that you're part of a collective, in a purposeful universe where everything, even the painful things that happen, are happening for a reason, where uncertainty can be exciting and loss is natural and can lead to growth, then there's just less of that clinging and grasping and, you know, resistance and avoidance that comes with false fear. So just simply switching our worldviews, and the the book has a chapter about each of those worldviews, with evidence that, that actually the second belief, the courage cultivating truth, is more true than the beliefs that have been operating our culture. And if we could collectively shift, then I swear we could change the world.
2: I encourage people to pick up a copy of The Fear Cure. I want to thank our guest this week, Dr. Alyssa Rankin. She's the author of The Fear Cure. This week's show is sponsored by Utopia Foundation, providing the opportunity for people to create solutions that contribute toward a more equitable world. Please visit them at utopiafound.org. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can visit our website, spiritualityhealth.com. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is produced by Corinne Johnston, and Alma Tassi is our program coordinator. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening.